as I read Matthew 21, 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The word of God for the people of God. Be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all here. Thank you for being here today. It's a beautiful day of celebration. It's good to see the, the children celebrating just like in this passage that we read, the children shouting out uh, praise to the Messiah, the King. Amen. <clears throat> I want to look specifically at this prophecy that Jesus fulfilled on this day from Zechariah. Zechariah 9, 9, it says, Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So I want to look specifically at this humble king, this humble king Jesus, but in 
looking at this Palm Sunday in this passage, I want to really look at a lot of the passages, all four of the Gospels mention this event. And what that says is that this was a very big event. It was very something celebrated that all the disciples remembered and wrote about. So we're going to look at some of the background of what led up to this. Where did the crowds come from? What are the palms about? What are the donkey? The, you know, but why, why did this crowd gather? And we're going to look at specifically Jesus knowing this was coming and planning it. It doesn't seem like we see in Scripture Jesus planning a whole lot of things about him, especially about fulfilling prophecy. But Jesus is actually uh, planning for this, sending the disciples to uh, pick up uh, this uh, donkey for him and bring it. So he's planning on doing this. You all see that today? He's, he's you know, go get this donkey and plant it. So we're going to look at that and... Uh, I also want to just look at, even though this is a great celebratory time, also that they're going to, as a whole, miss the time of the king. And I, I want to mention in, in Luke where it says Jesus wept over the city as he approached the city. He wept over it. So he's planning to be king, coming in where they're going to shout praises, and yet he's weeping over the city. And I want to look at that a little bit about the tension that is there in the scripture. And I think maybe as we process this, that we'll be sensing and knowing that that tension is within us and within scripture. How do we um, rejoice? Um, Paul said this in scripture, um, weeping, sorrowing, and yet always rejoicing. How do you do that? How do you, how do you have both and yet Jesus seems to be doing this very thing he's planning this celebration of shouts and yet before he heads down he's weeping over the city over their rejection of him can you feel me I hope you do as we study these scriptures and and dig into them so first the background the setting up of this scene Jesus's plans what is he doing in our text we see the location of this Bethphage this, this city that he's at, this is on the Mount of Olives. And then our story concludes in our text with that he returns to Bethany and lodged there. So just getting a picture of the geography is that uh, Jerusalem had the Mount of Olives right outside of it, about a mile or two. And Bethany and Bethphage sat on the Mount of Olives. So they're, they're both there. They're within walking distance to come into Jerusalem. That is the location. These two small villages that were just right outside of Jerusalem on the mountain called Olivet, uh, less than a couple of miles from Jerusalem. All four of the Gospels mention this triumphal entry of Jesus coming in from Bethphage, coming in to Jerusalem, and this crowd following him and these shouts of praise of Hoshiana, save us, just like Mary said this morning. This, this, this blended word of Greek and Hebrew that, you know, just they put together to shout out uh, praise to Jesus coming, uh, mounted humbly on this donkey. So all four Gospels mention this. The, the, they mention the crowds there that gathered with G Jesus. At uh, The other Gospels mention both Bethphage and Bethany also. 
And what created this crowd looking at the background of this? So we're leading up to this, but just the, the anticipation of this. What was happening in this last week of Jesus? And is it important? I think, and I think many Bible scholars think and believe, that this last week of Jesus, starting now with the triumphal entry, is the most important week in, in all of our history. The most important week of all the history we could ever have happened during this week. And the Gospels believe that too. If you look at the Gospel of John, starting in John 11, there is the Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And then all the rest of John from 12, which is the triumphal entry, uh, all the things that happen are the last week of Jesus' life. Do you see the emphasis there? You know, 11 chapters and then a shift to where another 10 chapters are on the last week of Jesus' life. I mean, do you see the emphasis there? And all of the Gospels do that. You know, more than a third of the Gospels are about the last week of Jesus' life because it is the most important week in our history, in the history of humanity, in the history of the earth, and the Gospels emphasize that. In Matthew 20, verse 17, it says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, so this is previous, our text, Matthew 20, we read in Matthew 21, you see Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem in Matthew 20. So what is he doing? As he's on his way up to Jerusalem, he's going to say something. And in the, in the heading of your book, in the, the uh, ESV especially, I think a lot of them do, that says this is the third time that Jesus is going to tell them about his crucifixion. So if you study and you can prove that out, and, and the Gospels mention this, the other Gospels also, that Jesus has told them about his crucifixion, uh, this will be the third time that he tells them. And he tells them very, very plainly here in Matthew 20, 17. He says, he took the 12 disciples aside and he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. So they're heading there. This is just the last kind of final week of his life. He's heading there. And he tell, tells them, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Del you know, and so he's explaining it. He says they will be, he will be given over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now that sounds pretty clear, right? And, and like I said, the subtitle, if you go back and study this, this will be the third time that he told them. And yet Luke records in his passage of this, in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34, it says that they, and, and Rifle read it in his prayer, they didn't understand. I mean, gosh, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. You know, that would be like, like exploding in my mind, you know. And, and you know what they talk about after that? Hey, Jesus, when you come into your throne, can we sit at your right and left hand? They're still seeing through their paradigm that, yeah, we're going up to Jerusalem finally, and he's going to be that Messiah king, and he's going to rule and reign. It's going to happen finally, yeah. And can we sit at your right, right after he tells them this? Can so that, that paradigm just that, that sometimes we can stuck in about Jesus and what he's going to do with our life and what, how, how he's going to win this kingship of the Messiah. He's trying to tell them the king has to suffer and die first. 
And it's just like, third time, completely blind to it. So in Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34, we see that when he tells them this, he then, it says they're heading up to Jerusalem from where? Matthew 20, 29 says, and as they went out of Jericho, now Jericho, there's Jerusalem, and then in the northeast, right along the Jordan River is Jericho, and it's about 15 miles. Want to go on a 15-mile walk with Jesus? Uh, let's leave. Let's head out. We're going up to Jerusalem. Of course, that was up, down from the river, the water. You know, Jerusalem's up. The Mount of Olives is up. Bethany and Bethphage are up, you know, so they're about 13 miles away. Jerusalem's about 15, and they're, they're leaving. This is the picture. This is what I want you to get into the story. They're headed up from Jericho. And I want you to see a little bit of what's happening there. In Jericho, it says that as they're heading up to Jerusalem, there's a great crowd following Jesus already. There's a crowd. And there's two blind men sitting by the roadside. It says from Matthew's uh, a story, the way he tells it, there's two blind men by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, that's a kingly title. When you're, when you're crying out, son of David, you're saying authority as king. You know, this is what it, what it meant. And the crowd rebuked them. Be silent, be quiet. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called and said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately recovered their sight and followed him. This is what's happening outside of Jericho as they're leaving to go up to Jerusalem. So this crowd's only going to get bigger, right? I mean, this is some of the things that Jesus is doing. Now, usually when he healed people, it was very noticeable that Jesus, through almost all of his life, said, don't, don't tell anybody. Even the lepers, you know, go to present your offering and tell the chief priest, you know, and present the offering, but don't tell anybody. Now, he's just like, he's not saying that anymore. This is last week, heals them, crying out, son of David. Come on, let's go up to Jerusalem. Crowd following him. Mark says uh, also that Mark 10, 32, and they, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They're headed to Jerusalem. Mark 10 records this story as they were leaving Jericho also with the disciples and a great crowd was following. He specifically mentions one of these blind men and he calls him uh, blind Bartimaeus. You might have heard this, a, a beggar, the son of Timaeus, who his father was. These are little things in the text that say hey this guy was actually he healed there and you can even go ask his father it's like footnotes in the story it's really interesting the way these things are laid out in scripture they don't just say blind Bartimaeus not only is he named that you can go and testify of hey did Jesus heal you on that road yeah he did who's your father is your father Timaeus yeah he is I want to talk to him too yes okay and so these little things are in the story. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and he heard Jesus of Nazareth, and he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your way, your faith has made you well, and immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Can you imagine? I think, you know, blind Bartimaeus in there. Hosanna! <laughs> yeah, that's part of the crowd, isn't it? Yeah, you just received your, your sight. Uh, so the, the Gospels are all telling these stories, this crowd, this, this crowd building. And Jesus, you know, now planning this, sends his disciples in uh, to Bethphage to get this donkey, to go in there. And you'll find this donkey this way. We're going to come in. And I, I imagine they're finally, like, excited, right? Because they didn't hear the chief priests are going to reject you. 
uh, the high priest is going to reject, I'm going to be beat. So they didn't hear any of that. They just hear, we're going up to Jerusalem and, you know, getting a donkey right in, king palms, all this symbolized kingship. It's, it's going to happen like we think it's going to happen, right? Jesus is trying to tell them, it is going to happen, but it's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Uh, but they don't understand this till afterwards. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Lean into these things afterwards. But in Luke 19, verses 41 through 46, I wanted to bring this out. This is what Rifle prayed this morning. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Um, and, and we read in our text, too, he cleanses the temple. And, and Luke is going to emphasize that in Luke 19, 41 through uh, 48. 41 says, and when he drew near and saw the city. So Jesus is coming up. He's drawing near to the city. He's looking over it. Could have been from the Mount of Olives drawing near to the city. And he wept over it. I just want you to see this too. Jesus is planning this, but I thought this was just very much about that kind of tension that's within all of us, but it's within Jesus because he knows this is his time. He has just told the disciples I'm going to go, and the chief priests are going to reject, and I'm going to be... So he's weeping over the city, over their rejection of him. And he says that, would that you, in verse 42 of Luke 19, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You would have known the things that make for peace. This is what peace is going to cost. If you knew the things that would bring peace and this is what jesus is he's the prince of peace he's bringing peace but now they are hidden from your eyes they could not see that jesus was coming to bring this for the days will come upon you he prophesies here when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another this happened in 70 a.d if you've ever studied history this happened within that generation uh, that the temple was destroyed. The Romans, there's reports of this, of how they surrounded Jerusalem. Not only did they conquer it, defeat it, uh, they tore it down stone by stone. Uh, and so all this happened, as Jesus said, he wept over the city um, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So he's weeping over the city like they don't know the time they don't know there are some who believe blind Bartimaeus is there there's a huge crowd that believes the people believe but mostly on a whole the people do not believe sounds pretty familiar to today right there's a few people here celebrating Palm Sunday right but there might be about 7.3 billion other people that don't in the world today I mean there there are some who believe here in this story they're they're there celebrating some and most, all, even the disciples have a, a, a wrong view of what's happening. Jesus is going to accept all of their praise and worship, but they don't, they don't get, you know, exactly what Jesus is doing, that Jesus will be crucified. The disciples themselves still can't see and hear that. They don't know. But in Luke 19... Uh, goes on to say in 45 he entered the temple and began to drive out all those saying uh, to them it is written my house shall be called the house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers can you imagine this it was a very prophet-like thing to do to go into the temple overturning tables and they're like you know what's going on here and he's saying my house 
Some of the things uh, they said about Jesus were that he spoke like no one else ever had. I mean, he just, he spoke as if he were God himself. I mean, can you imagine him saying this? My house shall be called a house of prayer. Like, this is my house. I can't imagine the authority that that must have come with when they said all the other ways he taught were ways that none of the other rabbis and teachers taught. He spoke as one having authority, the scripture said. He spoke scripture. Can you even imagine what it would be like when he said that? My house. I, I get a little bit of chills thinking like if I was there and heard that. But before he rides into Jerusalem, he weeps over the city because they will reject him as Messiah, King, Son of David, Son of God. The leaders will reject him and also most of the crowds that yell at this time will a week later cry out, crucify him. So we know they're not all in either. But Jesus comes. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, uh, a minister in, in, in England, he said this. He said, what is the greatest tragedy in the world? The fact that the world is blinded and unable to believe in the gospel. The greatest tragedy in the world. The unbelief in, in Jesus, even in these final days, was the greatest tragedy that Jesus wept over the city, that they did not, that they were blind to the day of their visitation when the Messiah was coming and delivered to them from God. So these people crying out, and shouting praise with palm branches laid at his feet the next week are going to be crying out for his crucifixion, many of them. The gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection is the only salvation for this world. It's the only salvation, but people still today reject Jesus. They reject this good news message. They are blind to it in unbelief, and Jesus still weeps today, and so should we. We celebrate today, and we weep today. We celebrate and we weep all through this Lenten holiday of these 40 days leading up to, in, to, to Easter, to the resurrection day of celebration. But this next week is a week of the Holy Week, this week that is the most important week in the history of mankind leading up to the, to the death of Jesus and his burial and the long silence of, of that whole Saturday of Jesus being buried in the tomb and then his resurrection on Sunday morning. Jesus wept over the city and their unbelief and he weeps still. John tells this story about the crowd that no one else tells. Think about this. You know what it was? None of the other gospels tell that lead up to this crowd? The resurrection of Lazarus. Look at it. Wow, can you imagine this event? None of the other gospel writers have it. A lot of people... Uh, say, you know, like, why? Why wouldn't they mention the resurrection? And a lot of it was because they were out to kill. This is a possibility. Not only were they out to kill Jesus, the scriptures say, but they were out to kill Lazarus because of his testimony. And the disciples might say, well, we'll mention these other things, but, you know, let's leave this out. They're still trying to kill us. But John's written much later from what we understand uh, in the writing of the Gospels. It's one of the later ones, and, and John's, you know, exiled on Patmos and all these things that happened in his life he's like I'm putting it in there yeah Lazarus the Lazarus story <laughs> come and kill me if you may 
but anyway, that's the only place in the Gospels where the resurrection of Lazarus is recorded. John 11, 1 through 4, says a certain man was ill in Lazarus of Bethany. So where did Lazarus live? Mary, Martha. Bethany. So that's that little town just right outside of Jerusalem. So this is where Jesus is hanging out with his good friends. Uh, Lazarus was a great friend, uh, and so were Mary and Martha. And so Jesus visited with them, stayed with them. They would take care of him while he was there. And uh, it said the village of Mary, Luke 11, 1 through 4, and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped uh, his feet with her hair. So John brings out who this Mary is that did this. You know, there's other accounts uh, similar to these things, but this right here is Mary from Bethany. And she's the one that took the ointment out, wiped Jesus' feet with it, and whose brother Lazarus was ill. The sister sent to him, saying, Lord, whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the illness does not lead to death, but for the glory of God. So the Son of Man will be glorified through it. Now when Jesus came, so and it says Jesus delayed going to Lazarus. Like he's planning this whole thing. He's planning this crowd. He's planning to go up to Jerusalem to get this donkey. These are all things happening right before this triumphal entry. I just love this is a crowd. This is a crowd that's uh, coming. John brings this out uh, that some of them said, could it not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So they're looking at that aspect, the, the, that healing of the blind man. And then Lazarus now dies of his illness. Jesus doesn't seem to get there on time, but God is always on time. And Jesus has planned very specifically this delay. And not only has he planned it for that, that Lazarus would be three days dead, but that he would be four days. And he says to remove the stone. Uh, <clears throat> they're already concerned about, the sisters are already concerned about um, Lazarus stinking. He's already decomposing, you know, into four days of his death. But they do what Jesus says, and he calls Lazarus out. This was a powerful testimony to the crowd that was there. And we read in John 11, 45 through 54, this plot there, that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Some believed when they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. But some of them went and ratted him out to the Pharisees. After seeing someone come out from a tomb after being dead four days, this is the hardness of really all of our hearts and the blindness of all of our eyes. And, and they go and tell the Pharisees. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together in a council, and they plan about how to kill Jesus uh, in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They're seeking to kill Jesus. Verse 54 of John 11, it says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. That's back up more in the north. Uh, Jericho's over here, and this is uh, in the northeast too, but more north, Ephraim. So he goes up there and stays with the disciples. But Caiaphas, the, the high priest at that time, says... He's saying that we must kill Jesus because of his threat. He's saying these things in that text of John eleven forty five 45 through 54. He says, Caiaphas says, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Now this is Caiaphas, the high priest, saying these words. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. 
So here's, here's the high priest. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's saying, we're going to kill Jesus. And it's better that he die. What is Caiaphas thinking here? Caiaphas is saying, we must kill Jesus because of his threat to Rome to be king. He's breaking out all these powerful miracles. If he really is that big of a threat, not only just to us, but to Rome, that he is that kind of king, they'll come and kill all of us. They'll wipe us out of a nation, as a nation. So it's better that, uh, that Jesus die, one man, than our whole nation be destroyed. This is what Caiaphas, the high priest, is saying. And he thinks he's saying that. But what the Bible says he's saying is that he's prophesying that Jesus, he did not say this on this his own accord but being high priest that year he prophesied that jesus would die for the nation he will die he will go to the cross he will die that the whole nation could be saved not only for the nation also but together into one the children of god who are scattered abroad john eleven fifty two. wow just powerful scripture of men being totally blind the high priest being totally blind to what's going on, Jesus knowing, weeping over the city, and yet coming in, because he's performed this, this huge crowd from Lazarus' uh, resurrection, uh, following him. John 12, after this, it says that. John 12, 17 through 18 says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So it had gone out. They had witnessed so much about Lazarus' death. The crowd came to say, we want to see this guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. This was a part of that huge crowd that we sing, uh, sing about today that's crying, that's shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, laying palm branches. This, this is the crowd that's been created. The blind Bartimaeus being healed. These two blind healed. This is all happening just this final week of Jesus's life and Jesus is not silencing them and when they tell him to silence them now what does Jesus say in, in, in John's uh, re record of this he says if they don't cry out the stones will the rocks will cry out and in our text today it said Jesus said he quotes Psalm 118 and he says if if they don't you know, haven't you ever heard out of the mouths of babes and infants, God has perfected praise. So this is perfect praise to me, and I'm duly deser deserving of it. And so he's proclaiming in the most face-to-face, -face, confrontatory way you can get with the chief priests, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, that he is the Mashiach, the Son of God. And there's many people cheering and shouting, Hosanna, Hoshiana, save us, you're the king. And there's also the majority of the group of the most of the leaders. We have maybe Nicodemus and Josephus, maybe of the leaders that become believers and maybe aren't in that crowd, but the rest are rejected Jesus. And this is who Jesus is weeping over. The city that has rejected the prophets, always rejected them, killed, stoned the prophets, are now rejecting him. He's right in line with the prophets to be rejected. But Jesus is coming, and how is he coming? It says that when he rides in, Zechariah said, and this is my point, that he comes in humble, a humble king. It's like this tension of weeping and yet coming and receiving the praise. He's weeping over the rejection and unbelief, and yet he's like, bring it on, bring it on, praise be to the one sent by God to be the Messiah King. 
he's also coming in as a king with all authority and yet humbly mounted. The King James and other versions says meek and lowly, uh, uh, gentle and lowly. It says in these different interpretations of humble. A gentle king? A humble king? A meek and lowly king? How, do you, how are you meek and lowly in the king? You know, how are you? Jesus does this. He comes in riding humbly. And this is what Paul says in this great poem. Most people, a lot of theologians believe in Philippians 2. This is a recant uh, a telling of a poem that was developed in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I, I believe it, agree with it. It just it rhymes. It just flows with it. Like in Romans 2, 5 through 11, have this mind in yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied out himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he knows that riding in on that donkey. He's already wept over the city. He's already told his 12 disciples, they're going to reject me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to turn me over to the Gentiles. They're going to flog me. They're going to beat me. And they're going to crucify me. And the great hope is our Easter hope. And on the third day, I'll rise again. Again, they're not seeing it. But this poem celebrates, this, this word of God in Philippians uh, celebrates Jesus humbly being that king that he died even on a cross. And then it says, And therefore God has also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. This is how he's king. He's king through going to the cross, humbly mounted on a donkey. He ascends to his throne through a cross. What king has ever done that? None. None. There is no story like this to become king through a cross, death on a cross. And the greatest scribes and Pharisees and studiers of the word couldn't see it either. They were blind to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that he would be bruised for our iniquities, that he would be crushed for our transgressions, bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and vice versa. They couldn't see it. The humble king mounted on a donkey, Jesus was equal with God, but he emptied himself out. Other kings and leaders rose to their thrones very differently, and they ruled very differently. Jesus rose through being the servant and humbled himself all the way into death, even death on a cross. All other of this world's leaders lord it over them and tell them to serve them. And in the ancient world, they had kings. And in the ancient world, they had, and Rome had their Caesars, and all of them uh, reckoned that they were divine. They printed on coins, son of God, and all these things. But, and, and they were to serve them as king, as Caesar. They had given themselves heirs, and they all exploited their status as being king. They exploited others with their great wealth that they accumulated unto themselves. And Jesus doesn't take on any of that. He doesn't take on that snobbish, stuck up, I'm better, I'm king than you. He rides in with the people, humble, lowly, on a donkey. And Paul's telling them and the Christians at Philippi, a Roman colony who knew all about Caesar as Lord, Paul is teaching them Jesus is Lord, but in a very different way. 
a way that he was obedient. He humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Has anyone ever seen a king like this? There's this beautiful poem written by Edward Shilalico. I don't know if I said his name right, from 1872 to 1948. He wrote this uh, during World War I, this poem in, in Greek. He said, If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the stars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today that wounds are, have no fear, show us thy scars, we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thee alone. There's no other God that can show you his scars. There's no other king that can show you his scars and wounds to bring healing to you. And in contrast, the other rulers, they're arrogant, they're bullying. But Jesus rules through his scars and through his wounds. We are healed. Isn't that beautiful? I shout Hosanna to the son of David, the king, because he's a king like no other. He's a king that came and related to me. He humbled himself by becoming and being made in the likeness of man in the first place. Humbled himself as a bondservant, a king who made himself a servant. And Jesus says this very clearly. If you don't believe this is what he's doing in Matthew 20 again, right before the triumphal entry, in 25 through 28, it says, Jesus called them and he said to them, You know that the other rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. This is one of his final lessons. Final week of his life. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as, and this is what he says in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man, this is his own example, his word for himself, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. I don't know if you've ever thought about him riding into Jerusalem with these shouts of celebration of joy and him offering himself as the Lamb of God before a people for a ransom for many. He knows that pushing to be king is going to get him. You're either going to leave or kill him. There's no in-between choice here. And this is our example. Jesus does this for our example. And in John 13, 
and reading the Jesus storybook Bible, which is right after the, the great triumphant entry. What is, what is the problem there in the upper room uh, where Jesus is about to offer the, the, the Lord's table? He's prepared this room, and the Jesus storybook Bible says the problem in the upper room was stinky feet. That was the problem. No one was taking care of it because back then you wore sandals and you walked through the animals stuff and the dirt stuff and you came in and it was very dirty and stinky. And no one, no one had taken care of that. And one of the lowliest jobs was to wash the dirty feet of people who came into the house. It was like the lowest slave job, like the entry position of a slave to do this. And what does Jesus do? Stands up, says, I'm going to take care of the stinky feet problem. And literally takes, this is the king who's about to die for him and washes their feet. That's why Peter can't stand it. He goes, I know who you are. And believe me, you're, not the, you're a king. You're not the lowest slave. That's why he, he, he rejects it. He knows Jesus humbling himself to this place. And Jesus says, I must wash your feet. And he allows him. But after this, Jesus teaches them too. And he says the same thing. Um, I love the beginning of it, that Jesus knows his own, that his hour had come for his departure out of this world. So he's in that last week. He's, he's loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. But I'm going to wash my disciples' feet as one of these last acts in the last week of my life. And he says, what I'm going to do to you now, you won't understand right now. He's, he's asking them, do you understand what I'm about to do? But he explains this one to him, and he says, you call me teacher and Lord. This is all in John 13, starting in verse 12. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, and so I am. So he's saying, I am teacher, and I am Lord. I am king. I am Lord. I'm master. You're right on that. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. A servant is not greater than his master. And what he's saying is, you, as my servants, aren't greater than me, your master. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Can we be blessed today? If you know these things, do them. And I think Jesus' example, believe it or not, on Palm Sunday, when we celebrate and we cry out, Hosanna, to this king, he's riding humbly, mounted on a donkey, and his whole life of ascending the throne is a humble king a meek and lowly gentle king offering himself up as a ransom for the people and he knows he's going to his death on the cross and he knows Passover is less than a week away and he knows and yet he presents himself lowly and then what does he tell us in all these teachings before in John here you also I've washed your feet. You see what I've done. And Matthew said the same thing. Gentiles, the world's lorded over not to be so among you. Serve one another. Jesus served humbly. We are to be a, a, a people of quality, of humble service to one another. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's take communion together and sing a song of praise.
in that upper room after he washed their feet. He took bread and he gave thanks to the Father. He broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together and remember the body of Jesus given for us. like manner he took the cup and he said this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins take and drink of it and when you do do this in remembrance of me and remember my death until I come let us partake together Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. That we cry out in the body of Jesus and in the blood of Jesus. Hosanna, Mashiach, save us, save now. And we thank you, Lord, for the salvation that is in your Son, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for riding in to Jerusalem, presenting yourself as the King that you were. Humble, lowly, mounted on a donkey. We praise you. Anoint our hearts right now to sing your praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>